life can be tricky, making us ask, what was that? Join host Jan Murray and her guests as they explore the that's of life. Welcome to Life After That. Hello, everyone. I'm Jan Murray, your host of Life After That. Welcome to another episode. Today, we have Kristen Wells in Indiana. She's going to share her family's story about her mother, Mary Jo Hunsberger of Illinois, who was diagnosed in 2017 at the age of 77 with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as ALS. Ms. Hunsberger lived until she was 81 and a half and passed away in 2021. So we want to welcome Mary Jo's daughter, Kristen Wells, with us today. Welcome, Kristen. Hi, thank you. So what can you tell us about your mom um, before she was ever diagnosed with ALS? Tell us a little bit about her so we can kind of get to know her as sure. well as you and how your family and where you were before all of this happened. Sure. Um, how do you encapsulate somebody in a in a not too long amount of time? especially when she was 81. <laughs> My mom was one of three children. They grew up together in one of the suburbs of Chicago in Evanston. And she basically stayed in the Chicago area her whole life with a brief stint in Southern Illinois when my parents lived down there for a little while for one of my dad's jobs. My biological parents were only married for about 18 years or so, something. I think I was in eighth grade, something like that before my dad left. My dad was an alcoholic. And so my mom put up with a lot of that kind of stuff for as long as, you know, she would have gone through that probably till the bitter end if my dad hadn't decided to be the one that he was kind of done with it all when she confronted him about things and stuff. So she ended up being married um, two more times after that. Her second husband passed away after only four years of marriage from a massive heart attack. And so she was in bed with him and did CPR and stuff. So she was, um, she saw that happen. And then her third husband was, um, by that time, I, my husband and I were engaged. And then they went to their 30th high school reunion. 30th or 35th, I think it was the 30th, um, and kind of reconnected. And so then they ended up getting married the year before my husband and I did. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, yeah. that's pretty cool, though. So um, so they ended up being married until he passed away from glioblastoma, which was, you know, a pretty aggressive form of brain cancer. Right. So she was a widow um, in her house by herself until she passed away. The house that she was in at the time, she sold our childhood home when she married him. She and my first stepfather lived in my childhood home. So when she met Harvey, she decided to sell it and move into his house. And then they re re renovated that. So her pride and joy and, and kind of recovering from the tough years, I call them, was when she was able to live with him all those years and kind of redo her dream home. She was a home ec major, so she had had designs and plans. Okay. for a house. She always thought she would teach, you know, cooking and sewing and all that kind of stuff. Um, but my brother and I came along pretty quickly. And so she was a stay-at-home mom with, with us all those years until my dad really got to the point where he just wasn't bringing in an income and that kind of forced her back to work. So she was one of those classic, you know, 
out of the women's lib movement, go back to work, <laughs> even though she didn't want to, single parent, and then at least was able to be married for a couple more times after that. So the majority of her personality, I think I appreciated more in those years. You know, once I was done with college and getting married myself and we were adults together, you know, we were just, it was what one of those lives of busy, crazy running all the time because she was the only person helping us get to do our school things and our activities and all that kind of stuff. But um, she was very close with her parents and she remained very close with my dad's parents as well. And so the four of them helped to take care of my brother and I, um, especially when we were out of school in the summers and at Christmas break and stuff. So we were kind of moved around a bit with them and stayed in their homes with them. And she didn't have us like all summer long. We were in the, we from the Chicago area to the upper peninsula of Michigan is kind of where we went back and forth and grew up. So she was one of a few major adults who were parental units in our lives, which, you know, now I look back and that was such a blessing to be able to have more than just her because we got to know, you know, her folks and my dad's folks really well, really well. That's good. She sounds yeah. like a really strong very woman so. because she went through an awful lot as yep. an adult. And yep. so how did that affect her going into an ALS diagnosis? What happened in her health or her life that made her seek out help that led to that diagnosis? <laughs> uh, seeking out help took quite a while. Because I mean, that's was what I'm so thinking. She's stubborn, right? She was stubborn, right? Everybody, everybody uses that word. I, you know, I like to think that she was just trying to keep her independence. She was yeah. always, she had, she was sort of forced to be very independent and survive, you know, and she was, you know, before, before people, before it was sort of popular or cool to be crunchy and sort of naturalistic that she was <laughs> that way from the very get go. And so she was always trying to do things with as little um, medical intervention as possible she always said, I never needed any medications. And she, that's true. I mean, other than when she got older, she needed some cholesterol meds and that kind of stuff. But she was, she was a very vivacious, she walked everywhere, she exercised, she did, you know, step aerobics and yoga, and she could, you know, run me under the table very easily. Sounds like my mom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so when you said that, I totally related to that. And so she just kind of, she was always a very logical person about life and had to learn how to take things one step at a time. And that's basically how she approached, you know, what her symptoms were. I think, honestly, when we look back on it, she feels like an um, a case of shingles in 2014 was probably the onset for her. When I was a new newlywed, so before my boys were even born, she was diagnosed with with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Okay. She went through treatments for all of that, you know, survival person, back to regular life, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so the, through the diagnosis process, her neurologist kept asking those questions. You sure you didn't have any, you know, radiation or any? And she said, no, I just went through chemotherapy. And um, because he kept trying to attribute all of what she was seeing to something logical. Other than ALS. Yes. Yes. Correct. So, so, but, you know, it was a good 20, um, I'm trying to think how old 
my oldest son is now 27 and he was a grad he had been out of high school for about three years when she was officially diagnosed so you know it was a good 20 plus years from the lymphoma to when all of this other stuff started to happen she hemmed and hawed and I remember this about getting the shingles vaccine and that was when it was brand new Mm-hmm. And um, and her her insurance wasn't going to cover, so she knew that she'd have to pay for it out of pocket. So she was kind of deliberating between all of all of those decisions. And I remember the day she finally called and she said, "Well, I've decided I'm going to go ahead and go for it." <laughs> she was always <laughs> a you know flu vaccine person every year and all that kind of stuff. So I think you know the medical community was very reassuring that it was the right thing to do. So she did. And within a month after that vaccination, she got a pretty bad case of the shingles. So I've always been sort of suspect about that. You never know. You know, yeah, you never know. Or my, my mom actually has had shingles like three times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know people can do it multiple times. So she always said, so either I would have had a worse case and the vaccine helped or, you know, it triggered it. And so she had some a little bit of damage along her her spinal column from that but it kind of rejuvenated and recovered and she was back to regular life for you know like I said several years Mm -hmm. she kind of started noticing like her knee with all of her walking and you know being very active and whatnot she started to notice one of her knees kind of hyperextending when she would walk back and forth to places in town so that was kind of her first what does that mean hyperextend like as you're walking her knee would kind of cave backwards and so she'd kind of stumble you know what I mean like I think the ligaments were starting to get more elastic Mm -hmm. or yeah yeah so um and then that kind of and that was her left her left leg so it was really just that one leg and so we just kind of attributed it to the fact that she did have some neuropathy um, with the lymphoma and the chemo where mm-hmm. she, her toes, you know, kind of never really got full feeling back in them. Mm-hmm. They were kind of always tingly, she said, uh, as if they'd been asleep for a while. And so she just was thinking, you know, age, residual effects from her previous health issues, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um and, and that's, that's understandable. It would kind of all fit together, correct. right? Correct. Exactly. And, you know, you hear these common patterns with all the people that are diagnosed with ALS, that there's something else that they're attributing it to for quite a while. It's just so hard to get that diagnosis quickly. Yeah. With my husband, it was, um, he was having gripping issues. So the first thing they did was put a disc, do a discectomy yeah. for his neck. And then that didn't really help. So they're like, well, we think you have carpal tunnel syndrome. Yeah. Let's cause his started in his hands. And yeah. so they were going to do carpal tunnel surgery. And if you listen to episode two, where I tell our story, I talk about that. And when we finally got to an ALS clinic, they're like, oh no, this is not carpal tunnel. Mm. <laughs> you know, I can laugh yeah. now. It was not funny then. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. And so she, you know, she went through, she did see a neurologist pretty quickly when she started stumbling more and kind of having the foot drop and kind of tripping more. Um, and so she started that pathway with trying to figure out what's going on. They did find a stenosis in her upper neck. Okay. That's the uh, narrowing where it narrows, narrowing right? The yeah. spinal column. Um, and so she, you know, she talked to a neurologist at that point and, but he just didn't think that it was significant enough he didn't really feel comfortable that it was a surgical intervention, which Mm -hmm. I'm kind of glad, you know, for now, obviously, but 
So she did a lot of with her, you know, naturalness, she did a lot of alternative um, medical things. So she saw a chiropractor and she did, you know, massage and she um, did Botox injections in her knee and her leg. Um, she all just thought it was all just in the one leg, you know, for, for the probably for the first three years right. before diagnosis. And so, and then she even got one of those, um, they're like a, a brace kind of thing that wrapped around her leg that then would give electrical impulses to the nerves. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like a TENS unit type thing. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Where it would yeah. just kind of maybe stimulate to help keep her foot from to keep her foot kicking out the right way when she would walk. So she wouldn't trip so much. We so did those, acupuncture and put electrical yes. through the, yes. through that trying did to do that something. as well. Yeah. So between <laughs> acupuncture, acupressure, massage, you know, that, that stimulation, the electrical stimulation cuff, um, and the Botox injections that, that kind of got her through for a while, but, um, there was still no answers obviously. And then of course, progression eventually got, to where she was falling more and that kind of stuff. So um, I, I remember that friends and especially like her really close best friends who lived near her. And then if she would have something happen, she would call on them to help. And my <laughs> brother also lived only about 20 minutes or so from her house, but um, he, because he worked full time and his wife worked full time, she would tend to call them after everybody else, you know, she didn't want to bother them or whatever. Right. So since he was just a few minutes further drive away and everybody else was kind of in her same town, she would call them first. So they were the ones that started on me eventually with, you've got to talk to your mom. She's got to do something more. This is just getting, you know, too bad. She's had too many bad falls. So she did start seeing, um, having some testing done before I even started taking her there because she could still drive and she was still working full-time and all that kind of stuff. Wow. Still working full-time at her age oh, yeah. and with yeah. all those issues. That tells yeah. me what a cosmopolitan yeah. type person. She's yeah. just a go-getter and, yeah. A, yeah. and a fighter. Right. And, you know, and after my stepfather passed away, I mean, he was only 62. They were, they were the same age. So they, he was only 62 when he died. So she had plenty, you know, many, many years left. Um, she didn't plan on retiring early because she said, I just don't feel like I should. It's not like she needed the money necessarily. I mean, the house was paid for and all that kind of stuff, but it gave her a sense of purpose. Obviously, she was in a really great job setting where she was an office manager for a, a small business, privately owned business. And so she didn't even have to be in the office every day. She didn't have to be there full time, but he still paid her full time salary. So she's like, why would I walk away from all that? Exactly. I said, I agree. You know, just <laughs> keep doing what you can. And so she would use that money then to be able to do her mission trips and travel and, you know, spend time with her friends and do all the fun stuff. So she was not going to shut down if she didn't have to, obviously. Nice. Um so, yeah, so she had a fall at work one day going out to her car and her boss had to kind of come and help her get her into her car. That wasn't as bad of an injury. And then in one of the doctor's offices, she had to go to the bathroom. And when she was in the bathroom, she fell in one of the stalls and got stuck and dislocated her elbow. So it was the same. I call her left side was her bad side. It was the, it was her left elbow. So now she had the bad arm and bad leg on the mm -hmm. same side. Um, so once that happened, you know, I just was like, okay, I'm going to have to start going up there more frequently. 
um, and just, you know, visiting more and helping her with whatever she wanted me to do. And we kind of had that negotiation where, why don't I just plan to come once a month? And then if you want me to attend some of your doctor's appointments or whatever with you, I will. Um, and so, you know, uh, gradually she went into, she started with a walker and then she went, you know, like a rollator, rolling walker. Mm-hmm. Um, initially it was a cane. And my, I remember the one year my husband and I got her a couple different cane options and we got her a shower chair for her shower. And she did not want the shower chair at all. So she made us take that back. <laughs> and she just kept one of the canes. So she didn't use it right away, but she said, yeah, maybe it'd be good if I had this on hand just in case. So at least, you know, she was, it was a sign to me that she was willing to think about using extra help if it really came down to that. And so, and so she had had, she had been diagnosed at this point. She already knew, no, no still didn't was, know yet. Okay. Still didn't know, but she just wow. was like, you know, if I'm having that much trouble tripping and I need to be extra careful out walking, maybe I should have something on hand just in case I need that extra support. Okay. So like I said, she, she would do things, you know, when she knew she needed to, she would be pretty logical about it. So, but then what I noticed starting to happen was that she wasn't, she wasn't showering. She wasn't standing in the shower and showering. She, so her hair wasn't as um, kept as it normally would be. And I found out, eventually that one of her friends was coming over every few days, every, you know, like a couple times a week to help her wash her hair in her wash tub in the laundry room. So she could just bend over that sink. And oh. then she was doing sponge baths. And the thing is in her house, she had this huge bathroom with this open shower. There was no door on it or anything. So you, I mean, it really made it easy when she finally did need to be in the wheelchair. We could just wheel her in there and out of it, we, you know, with two shower heads and this big, huge garden tub, and it was all kind of in the same general tile area. So you knew something was really going well, on, I didn't knew. you? Yep. Because when she wasn't doing that, I'm like, okay, the, you know, something, something's up here. So it's just that, that slow questioning, not trying to accuse, not trying to get angry, but just, you know, mom, what, what's going on? Be honest with us. Cause we obviously are going to help you with whatever you need, you know? So that took a while for her to kind of get to that point where she was like, yeah, I don't know what's going on. And I do need to get some more medical intervention and get some more answers. So what was the final straw that finally she another bad fall, Mm, you know, the falls are so dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Going into the house from the back door, um, just tripping up. She just had two steps to get up, but tripping and falling flat up, flat on her face, this bloody nose, black eye, you know, and again, she had to call somebody cause she couldn't get herself up. So that's kind of a common story with a lot of families that, yep. you know, have an ALS patient that it's just the falls are what kind of what gets you. Yeah. And so then I started questioning, you know, mom, how good are your feet and your hands for driving? Um, and she said, I still can do that. <laughs> So I'm, I rode with her. I made her prove to me (laughs) that she still could. And she really, with her other leg, she actually could, you know, it was just, it was interesting, but so we just kind of let time go a little at a time, but at least we were aware. And my youngest son, we homeschooled our boys all the way through high school and my youngest son, (laughs) yay. I did too, honey. (laughs) Yes. 
So my youngest, we just had the two boys. They were three and a half years apart. And my youngest son, the year that he was going to be graduating high school, um, that was when we finally, you know, got the diagnosis in the spring. So I just kind of knew, okay, well, I'm just going to segue from that and thought I might maybe look for some sort of part-time work or whatever, but I just decided, nope, I'm just going to keep my life open so I can be there with her as much as possible. Um, so God's timing for all that was really good. And we do have a really strong faith in our family. So our, our Christian faith has been the thing that re everybody relied on, including my mom. So that was always very reassuring through the whole thing. Um, and, you know, she had to learn to rely on that early on in her life with all the other stuff she went through. So Right. And, and we did as well. And my husband had a strong faith, as did I. And um, our church families, both a previous one and one that we were part of it during that time, really came through yeah. for us and came to do the Bible studies at our house and nice. came to celebrate the holidays with us. And even... Uh, when he actually moved to a nursing home the last couple of years of his life, because it got too much for me. Yeah. I could not sure. do it. Sure. Um, they still traveled 45 minutes to that nursing home to once a month yeah. to do, you know, uh, what yeah. we, we called small groups together, yeah. celebrating yeah. his birthday, things like that. So that was, and I think I talked about that in my episode, but okay. it's super, um, they were just really great. I don't know what we would have done without it. Right. Now, I, I can say that since he passed, I I have changed a lot. Uh, I still have my belief and faith, but I've changed a lot. And I have lots of questions for God when I get to yes. meet him. <laughs> Absolutely. We all will, you know, I mean, yeah, and it's okay to have questions. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, um, his main thing is just keep coming to me to ask. Right. <laughs> and he gives us grace for our questions. I'm sure. Right. Absolutely. So, so when did you, lo when did you re at what point did you relocate from Indiana to Illinois to be with your mom all the time? Not till the very end. And okay. she didn't want that. She, so when my stepfather, well, the, when her third husband passed away, she's, she was her, his caregiver at home along with um, a man that they were able to hire um, that his, her mother-in-law, his mom helped to pay for because, um, you know, they didn't have long-term care insurance or anything like that. So, um, so she saw that whole process of how having a caregiver in the home and all of that was so, so beneficial. She could still keep working full-time with him. And then she was the main person on the weekends and the evenings with him. Um, so she went ahead and found a really, at the time, great long-term care policy and good thing she took that out because we used every bit of it, you know, and that's so, what hurt us. My husband actually, and I didn't know this, but about yeah. six months before he was diagnosed, he dropped his long-term oh. disability policy and converted it to short-term. And that's with him having had problems for months that I didn't know about. He hid his gotcha. symptoms for a year or longer. Wow. And so, yeah, it, and it, it did financially devastate us. So, kudos to your mom. She sounds like a, just a very smart yeah. woman. <laughs> she, she, she always was more worried about kind of taking care of us, quote unquote, like she didn't want to be the burden on our lives. And, mm -hmm. you know, even though my brother still lived in the Chicago area and was close by, I was four hours away. 
And um, she knew that I would be the main person that would have to take, you know, take that on. And so I think she did a lot of it just for her own peace of mind too, obviously. Um, That doesn't necessarily take away the challenge of finding the right people. Right. That's hard. That is so hard. So we did, you know, go through those kinds of things from time to time, um, especially weekend caregivers. But the main, she interviewed agencies because with the policy, with the insurance policy, she had to use an agency that had a uh, RN on staff that was just part of their requirements. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't just go hire. I mean, unless we paid out of pocket, we couldn't just go hire people that we knew or private people like that. So so she interviewed the agencies herself to try to get a sense of wh- who she thought she felt most comfortable using. Um, and we, you know, the the AL, the neurologist that she was using, she just kind of, God just made it all work out. He happened to be the main neurologist who started one of the higher level ALS clinics. And it was like, you know, five minutes from her house. Oh, Wow. So we didn't even have to go downtown Chicago to the one down there. This was just, you know, up in the northern end of the suburbs. And so the ALS Association, the chapter there for the greater Chicagoland area, um, they were kind of part of that that clinic from the very get go. And so we met um, from the very first time we were there, even before the official diagnosis, we met a lot of the people that were working with the clinic. And so we had an advocate from the the chapter from the very get-go. She happened to have been uh, a nurse that worked for a neurologist in her life previously, as well as in hospice. So she had both of those scenarios in her professional experience. And, uh, you know, when I asked her, what made you decide that this is kind of the area that you wanted to focus on and work for the association? And she said, I just worked with too many families with ALS when I was working in the neurology arena. And she said, it was just an area that people needed somebody who knew how to help advocate. And I said, you are so right about that. And what a value she is. It's hard to find people, even neurologists that know enough about, I mean, we as caretakers and people who have been down the road can pretty much educate the medical personnel. (laughs) Yeah. And so I didn't realize that at the time until after I got on like the Facebook pages and stuff and started reading what everybody else in the country goes through. And I was like, oh, good. This just can't, you know, yeah, we need, we need research. We need cures. We need all the medicines and all the different opportunities to try whatever. Mm -hmm. We need all that approved, but we also need all the ALS chapters to be as, as, um, competent. I don't know if that's the right word. I don't want to sound too negative. Maybe but... as active as involved and have Correct. people who know what they're actually doing. We had a yes. good one as well here. Yes. We did. Yeah. And so I know they exist, but from what I can tell from what people's stories are, especially around the world too, it's far and few between to even find a chapter that can help give you the guidance and you know suggestions on equipment. And so anytime we needed something, we just called <laughs> there And then she would call the nurses and they would get the orders put in. And, you know, luckily my mom was already on Medicare. So between Medicare and her supplemental, everything was taken care of. We didn't have to worry about financial issues for medicine, for the medical part of it or her, you know, caregivers. And that's so great. 
Yeah. So all of that, I, the only thing I did was come up once a month for either a week or 10 days or whatever at a time, I would attend the support groups with her, go to the clinics with her, you know, handle all of this stuff and then just the normal household stuff and help pay the bills and, you know, just all that kind of stuff that let her do whatever she could keep doing on her own, but then just kind of be her backup. So, and so I told her from the very beginning, when we get to the point where you need me to be here full time, that's my plan. You can't argue about it with me. That's just what I'm going to do. I need to do that for me. I need to do that for you. I need to do it for my brother. And so, and, and my boys were grown and they were kind of all doing their thing. And my husband was, you know, so it worked, it worked out for us. Thank so goodness. What to get a little bit more personal and you can answer or not, or go yeah. see if you want, yeah. but and I read your background questionnaire. So what in, was going on inside of Kristen, the daughter, watching your mom? <laughs> what was going on there for you as you watched these things happen? I've got a little bit of a survivalist tendency because of her that she taught me. But I'm also way more emotional than she is. So I'd be really strong and pulled together when I was in front of her. And then I'd just go break down later. Yeah. <laughs> and the, so we really only had kind of one major emotional altercation. It thoroughly embarrassed her that we had this kind of blow up. And it was, you know, it was probably two years into the, into the process. So by then she's in her wheelchair and she can't, you know, really stand much on her own anymore. She's trying to stand at the sink and hang on to things and all that kind of stuff still. But, um, we were getting to the point where it was she, what she wanted to keep trying to do and trying to do independently and still stand and be mobile as much as possible was getting too dangerous for the caregivers. But they were so willing to try to help her be that way for as long as possible that they were almost willing to kind of overlook their own security or, or safety or whatever. And I just, when I would be there, I'd see too many signs that we just can't keep putting them through this. So that's what our blow up was about. And she was just really upset that I did that in front of one of the caregivers. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't so much that we were arguing about it. It was just that I chose to do it when they were there working instead of wait till they leave at night. So she was insistent that she would always be by herself at night and they would put her to bed and then she would just be there. You know, obviously she got to the point where she wasn't going to be able to roll anymore and move anymore. So, you know, for 10 hours, she'd be in the same position. Um, I'm surprised she, she did get some pretty severe um, wounds, you know, towards the end, but I'm surprised she didn't get them sooner in the process because of that. But she just, she just, she just called the shots. She called her shots every step of the way. And she just knew what she was able to still handle. And she did, you know, so even when I was there, I would sleep upstairs in the second floor in my bedroom, you know, and she just, cause that was her, her sanctuary. Her bedroom was her sanctuary. She felt normal when she was in bed. She could just lay there, especially when she could still use her hands and change the TV and use her iPad and, you know, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Did she so, ever lose her voice or have any yeah. breathing problems? She uh, did. Yeah. Definitely. Um, she couldn't stand the trilogy. She really could never get a handle of that because she had, she was in such good shape before that her breath capacity, she, she could sit in a relaxed state and maybe not have to take a breath until about two and a half to three minutes. Oh, wow. So she, and they would, 
Yeah. So, and of course the RTs would come in and, and set the, the modulator, you know, for how, how often they thought she should be. And she's mm -hmm. like, it's making me breathe too much. I feel like I'm going to hyperventilate. It's blowing air in when I'm still trying to, you know, breathe out because, it, and so it finally took an RT to come to the house and spend about an hour and just keep adjusting until my mom finally got to the point where it's comfortable. And I just kept looking at her and I said, why don't you try two minutes and 40 seconds and see what happens. She's, she just looks at me. She goes, that just doesn't seem right. I said, just try it and see what happens. <laughs> she just looked at me. She goes, oh my goodness. No wonder she's been hating this. You know, that respiratory therapist probably could go and do a lecture on ALS patients because of working with your mom though, because yeah. that respirator, that RT, that respiratory therapist learned something yes. about how some patients can, I don't think my husband could have done that, but yeah. It's so different. And she learned how to listen to the patient. Right. Exactly. Because um, yeah. that's hard to find an RT, a PT, an OT, any of the right. therapists that know right. enough about the disease to defer to what the patient will actually tell them. I know we had trouble even with some doctors. No, that's not how this works. It's like this. And they would, you know, we have to educate them. Right. <laughs> Right. You know, yeah. And I just think so, the more they're learning about, I'm going to call it a syndrome because I feel like that's what we're going to find. I feel like it's going to be like some of these other medical syndromes where there's just this spectrum and there's so many places on the spectrum that people are going to fall. It doesn't begin the same way for everybody. It, it doesn't progress the same way. It, you know, my mom didn't have trouble with drooling you know, hers was peripheral onset. It wasn't bulbar onset. So she didn't have trouble with the choking and swallowing until closer to the end. Um, and she, we had other friends uh, over the years that went through it. So she knew enough about what it does mm -hmm. and what to expect. Um, so I just think the more we learn, you know, and the more the medical community can become aware of it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like your kitty. Um, yes, we, that's the biggest thing I learned from the support group was learning how to become her advocate and, and helping her to continue to advocate for herself as well. And that's, you know, and I'm going to take that as, as a big message from you for those who are listening, who are involved with ALS or who are not, but maybe know someone, you know, it's so important to advocate for your patient Correct. Whether it's your husband, your wife, your mother, your father, your friend, or whoever. Right. Because honestly, I don't think they learn or are taught a lot in nursing school or medical yeah. school about this so-called rare disease, which I'm starting to question the rarity of it. Yeah. Um, and also it used to be known as an older person's disease. And it right. seems like in these groups, I'm seeing there's All a lot these of young people. young people. I mean, my husband was mid forties when he was diagnosed. Yeah, I think that's very young. Yeah. yeah. Well, his two brothers, one was diagnosed. I think he was either late twenties or early thirties and the wow. other one thirties. He had two brothers before him um, and a sister that died recently. There were six kids. So and definitely four of six. familial, huh? Definitely familial, wow. but unfortunately they have not been able to identify a particular genetic mutation for this family. So we don't have a clue oh. where it's coming from. Wow. Um, so yeah, it's just a real tragic thing, but I know in every single case in this family and my husband's family, it's been super important to arm ourselves with knowledge and yes. to be able to advocate for their needs. 
um, yeah. with the medical community, with the, with the rest of the ALS association, that type of community, right. you have to be able to advocate. And it's so important to get connected to the groups like on Facebook. Those are closed private groups. So if anybody's listening right. and you're out there suffering alone, understand that there are closed private groups just for caregivers and right. you can go in there and you can talk to other people who are going through what you're going through and be very open about your problems. Right. You can also find out the things you need to be thinking ahead about. Correct. Um, That's and so then important. it's so yeah. important. And if you've, if you're alone and you've lost someone already, there are closed private yeah. groups of widows and widowers and yeah. partners and uh, yeah. just uh, friends and relatives and so forth. And that's how actually I've come to know who Kristen is to have for right. this podcast is through um, a cow's a support group, cows meaning caregiver of someone with ALS. Right. And uh, so we're going to go ahead and wrap this uh, episode up. Thank you so much yeah. for sharing about your mom's journey. She sounds like an incredible woman. She was. And yeah, I absolutely. think she raised you right so that you were able to handle <laughs> everything that you went through yeah. and uh, you held your posture and your strength all the way through that. And I find it very encouraging and I hope others will too. So I'd like to invite you all who are listening to listen to the next episode uh, it will come out in two weeks and you will hear how Kristen has carried on and how her family is doing since her mother passed away mm -hmm. in 2021. So thank you, Kristen, again, for joining us here. Thank you so much.